Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that you would help me, help us, help us as a church to grasp, to experience, to know a little bit more the height, the breadth, the width, and the depth of your great love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, um, I don't need to remind you, we've already talked about it, you don't need to be a genius to realize that actually the importance of love, not just in the church, but in our culture as a whole, whether it's TV programs uh, dominating our schedule that long for love, look for love, look at understanding what love is, or a music industry filled with songs about longing, about love being fulfilled, about the brokenness and the disappointment of fractured love. So much of our contemporary culture is driven, is driven by our desire to be loved and to love. We also see this in so many different ways. There are so many different ways of looking at it, but if you look at our longing for things, a longing to accumulate, a longing to accumulate more experience, better things, be more beautiful things, more possessions, more glorious experiences, kind of consumed by different interests. In many ways, we are consumed by an appetite of unfulfilled love. There's a really good Christian book uh, written called You Are What You Love by James K. Smith. I really recommended that looks at some of the kind of things about what we love shows where our hearts really are. It doesn't take long to be alongside someone to see the loves of their life and see what shapes their life, their decisions, their choices. You are what you love. But where do we find true love? Where do we find true love? You know, I was blessed to be brought up by two loving parents. I can't remember, and I say this as honestly as I can express it to you this morning, I can't remember a time in my life when I didn't feel loved. Or I didn't know, I can't consciously think of a time 
where I didn't know that I was loved. My mum was very affectionate and verbally affirming towards me. My dad was really passionate about helping me find my identity in Christ and what I was called to do on this earth. They were loving, but they were far from perfect. Lest you think I had some kind of idealized kind of upbringing with two perfect parents, far from the truth, and they would be the first to say that. But they did show me love and gave me love. After I'd finished my A-levels, I went to work for a Christian mission um, for a summer when I was about 18, and we were doing a mission in Europe. I think I went to Berlin that summer, and I started with a conference before we went on mission into Berlin doing some street work. I remember one evening listening to a Christian writer, I know this is quite a few years ago, called Floyd McClung. And this is over 30 odd years ago. And in those days, Floyd McClung was quite well known in the Christian circles. He was famous for working with prostitutes in the red light districts of Amsterdam. And him and his wife ministered to those who we would consider to be, you know, fairly low in the food chain. And I remember that evening as I was listening to him talk. And he started to talk about the unconditional love of a loving heavenly father. And actually, I just started to weep. I just started to weep because I realized that as well as, as hard as my parents had worked, as much love as they'd given me, that my heart longed to be loved unconditionally. And I didn't feel that. I feel weighed down by my own sense of some of the things I felt guilty about or feel shamed about or I was trying so hard to be righteous. You know, that earnest kind of young Christian thing. If I try really hard, surely I'll be able to please God. But inwardly, it wasn't there. But as I sat there and I listened to all that God has done in Christ as I listened to him talk of God's unconditional love of a father that Scripture attests to, it's like God, by his Spirit, was starting to take the blinkers off my eyes. However hard I tried, however good I was, would never get close to all that God wanted for me. But actually, he loved me. He loved me unconditionally and offered me to receive again the unconditional love of a father for his precious child. For me, it was one of those moments in my life where I knew God was beginning to reshape my life in quite a different and radical way. Replacing my rags for his riches. I love some of that imagery in Isaiah 61 as well, that, that, that beauty for ashes. When we're actually honest before God and say, Do you know, it feels like it's all a bit ashy. But he is able to transform and to bring beauty out of ashes if we're prepared to honestly come before God in repentance and forgiveness 
and to receive his love. That's a words of introduction and thinking about this, we're going to think about a number of things to do with love. But Galatians 5, 22 and 23 are two of the most famous verses in the Bible. They're the verses that often people will know even if they have nothing to do with church. And Paul writes these verses about how holy this, the Holy Spirit radically transforms our hearts and lives to produce this beautiful picture of fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, is joy, is peace, is patience, is kindness, is goodness, is faithfulness, is gentleness, and self-control. Nine fruit of the Spirit. Together, to use John's illustration of a few, a few weeks ago, nine fruit in a bowl. But it's not the fruits, it's the fruit. These are not individual fruits, in a sense. It's the fruit of the Spirit, produced by the Spirit, but through a radically transformed heart. You may wonder, why is this important? Is this really significant? Well, about a couple of months ago, we were having some difficult conversations in the church with some groups of people. And um, our, the day after, we were having some quite difficult conversations where people were getting quite uh, disagreeing and not necessarily finding it easy to disagree. Um, this recording was on the thought for the day. We are doing Radio 4 this morning, by the way. For those who don't do Radio 4, welcome to Radio 4. For those who would like something a little bit earthier, sorry, it's Radio 4 this morning. But this is a reflection by Sam Wells, who's an ethicist, Christian ethicist, about what we call to. So it's about two or three minutes long. Bear with it and see what you think. It is now time for Thought for the Day at 13 minutes to 8. The speaker this morning is the Reverend Dr. Sam Wells, vicar of St. Martin in the Fields. Good morning. In 1973, a landmark decision of the American Supreme Court ruled that a pregnant woman could choose to have an abortion without excessive government restriction. Monday's unprecedented leak from a draft Supreme Court opinion suggests that ruling may be about to be overturned. Those who voted for former President Donald Trump, not because they admired him, but because of his promise to nominate pro-life justices, stand to be vindicated. This is a very American story. Because of the pattern of resolving such issues through the courts rather than through legislation, because of the culture wars that turn every painful personal issue into a polarizing public battleground, and because of the way dogmatic opinions pervade public life. But let's not kid ourselves that this isn't a UK story as well. Beneath the passionate and profound arguments lies a crucial question. How are we to live together with people with whom we profoundly disagree? Just think of Brexit or a united Ireland. How are we to flourish in a world where people differ even on the definition of the word flourish? Here's one notion of politics. It's the manipulation of law, legislation and public opinion to get as much of what you want as you can and protect yourself from others seizing it back from you. You fight your way to the driving seat and then take the car as far as you possibly can before you're thrown out. Who cares how much wreckage you leave behind so long as you're convinced you're in the right? 
We'd all like to distill complex issues down to straightforward right and wrong, but there's more than one kind of right. Sometimes you can be so preoccupied about being right on an issue that you miss the way you're creating the wrong kind of society. Here's another notion. Politics is the creation of consensus through identifying what safeguards everyone needs to build trust and take the risk of entering previously uncharted territory together. In listening to differing views, you develop respect, humility and wisdom. You renounce the urge for personal righteousness or the exertion of your own will, but gain community, compassion and companions. When St Paul named the fruits of the Spirit as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control, he was saying these qualities indicate the right kind of society. These are a measure of whether a community is flourishing. Sometimes we can become so passionate about ensuring our view prevails we can end up becoming people and communities where none of these nine fruits are apparent. What then have we gained by being so sure we're in the right? Most of us, uh, when we're honest and we have a conversation with someone, we're actually prepared to be honest about where we are in our lives, recognize that we need to change. I would say there isn't a single person here this morning who doesn't when they were asked honestly. We'll have pounded bad habits into us, we'll behave in certain ways that we wish we wouldn't and couldn't. For various reasons, we struggle to get free to bring about change. And a way of understanding that is a little bit like this, is that um, if you want to change, we realize it's really hard. And if you say, for example, take this Coke can and you crush it in your hands, that's permanently changed. Change has happened. If I take this ball, this elastic ball, and again, I crush it in my hands. For a while, it looks different. It has the appearance that change has happened. But when my circumstances change, when I stop trying really hard, giving all the willpower I can possibly bring, gradually it just goes back to the same place. No lasting change, no real change, no change, dramatic changes really happen. We've just tried really, really hard. Tried really hard to look or to behave the right way, but no significant or inner transformation or significant transformation has really taken place. And we all go out to try and change different parts of our lives. We say, you know, I think I've got it now. And as our circumstances change, things go wrong, people come and do things we don't want to, we realize we're back where we started. This picture of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about is a talk about a radical change that happens because our hearts, the very centers of our beings, has been and is being changed. So take a moment this morning 
Do you find those nine fruits of the Spirit compelling for you? Do you long for them? Do you long for them for us as St. Swithins? For ourselves, but also for other people. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, love. Do you think that if they were in evidence all the time, that actually we'd be radically more effective and actually that people would come and see a community that actually they would love to belong to, be part of, that's different to what the world has to offer? Not devouring, as Paul talks. Not full of jealousy, not full of selfish ambition, not full of envy and factions, but full of the fruit of the Spirit. Are you compelled this morning by longing for a community like that? The reading Catherine read us, 1 John, is John's letter to a dear Christian community, urging them to keep on track to remain faithful to the God of love, shown in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And most people who are sat here this morning, I'm guessing most of us who are sat here this morning, will say that, Tim, you're not saying anything new to me this morning. I know we're called to love. But at the heart of this letter that John writes, he talks about in verse 8, he says, God is love. God isn't just a bit loving, has a good day where he loves quite well and a bad day where he doesn't. Doesn't have loving intentions, just have loving intentions towards us. But in his nature and of his very being, God is love. But for me, as I look through the rest of Scripture and I see the kind of different evidence of God's love. I don't see a love of God in a way that sometimes we think of love. I've said before that I really like the quote by the uh, writer, the English writer G.K. Chesterton, who wrote about the furious love of God. Because I find that active side of God's love a helpful antidote to the very passive side of God's vision of love. I love Francis Chan, the author writing the title in trying to capture something of the extravagance of God's love, crazy love. I love the vision of a God who would talk about God's love as going out to bring back the one who was lost while leaving the 99. I also love a vision of God's love that includes God's discipline. Longing for us to fill the God-given purpose that he placed us on this earth to do. I love a vision of God's love that simply is about doing the will of our Heavenly Father. Of simply being devoted and faithful. I love a vision of God's love that blesses our enemy. Not put up with not mock, not belittle, but blesses our enemies. I love a vision of God's love that drives out darkness in all its forms, that banishes fear and brings God's beautiful peace 
And I love a vision of God's love that never gives up on us. Never gives up on us. In spite of all my failings, in spite of my weaknesses, in spite of all the things, God comes as a God of love, accepting, embracing, as I return to him. And I would argue this morning that God's loving acceptance is something the world desperately needs at the minute. God is love. Paul's great passage in 1 Corinthians 13, as many of you will know, is the great passage that's often read at weddings. Uh, What does true love look like? What's it say in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. Love is not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Do you know this this morning? Have you experienced this? Do you long to give the bit that you have experienced of God's love away to others? These verses show us in 1 Corinthians 13 how the Holy Spirit can produce a radically transformed heart to produce this kind of godly love that looks humanly impossible. How? How do you get to this? Well, you have to meet. You have to meet a person and the power of love. You have to meet a person and power of love. Paul does not say, as those of you who will notice, he says, do you know, I really would love you to be quite patient. Do you know, know, if you have a good day, be kind. I don't want you to boast. Instead, He personifies love. Love is a person. Love is a living person, showing kindness, showing the fruit of love to others. Why does Paul do this? Why does he write like this? Because this love is only possible when you meet love like that. This is only possible when you encounter a love like that. Real love doesn't happen just by trying hard, but through receiving and through meeting love itself. Love isn't a set of rules, and I know you know that, but love is a person and a power that comes to you and radically transforms your lives from the inside out. You encounter true love. Paul paints a beautiful, perfect picture of love in many ways. So what's Paul thinking? So when Paul wrote, love suffers long, I wonder how could he not have been thinking about the one who suffered on the cross for us? When it says love keeps no record of wrongs, How could he not be thinking about the one who who said, Father, forgive them, 
Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. When he says love always protects, always hopes, how could he not be thinking about the one who said, today you'll be with me in paradise? Just as Jesus is dying on the cross. What's he say? He says, it is finished. It is finished. Do you know what he means when he says that? Here's a man, powerless, abandoned, betrayed, in human terms destroyed, yet just before he dies, he says, I did it. But what did he do? What did Jesus do that he would say that he accomplished our salvation because he died on the cross in yours and my place? and took all the punishment of our own and of the world's on himself. We can come and we can worship this morning because God's love perseveres to the end. It is finished. Do you know, it's very clear, and I know you know this, and also as part of my experience, that Actually, the world is just push people, anybody, not just in the church, but in our culture, get to know people really well, get beneath the surface. And there's incredibly hurt and damaged people in the world. Spend some time with some people who trust you enough to tell you actually what's going on in their lives. And you'll realize the pain and the weight of things they carry. A couple of friends I've met up this week, being betrayed significantly, Seeing human relationships at its worst, its most broken. And seeing lives destroyed at a time and brokenness everywhere. The absence of love. The absence of love, the absence of acceptance, starved of love. Relationships starved of love can't flourish. And our failed relationships in all its different ways or a life of constant criticism, never being good enough, leaves a mark on all of us. We live in a world that is tough. We live in a world that leaves its mark of the experience of, of the tuss of it. But where does that leave you this morning? Does it leave you just trying really hard to do it on your own? Or does it leave you hungry the God of love who wants to come and heal and meet you. The God who loves to come and touch the brokenness of your life with his healing love. So this morning when you see and that encourages you, think about God's love for you. We see a God who comes to us, who longs to transform our hearts and our lives from inside and outside. You can try all the other things in the world, to make yourself feel righteous. I've tried lots of them. Didn't do it for me. But God offers a power and a person and a person of Jesus who if we'll allow him to, will change and radically transforms our hearts and our lives. Will you receive him this morning? Will you receive him 
Does your heart long to be fully loved and accepted by a father who knows every hair on your head? Do you want to encounter a God who forgives even the worst of your sins, some of which you buried 50 years ago? And you've never received forgiveness for, and you always still feel unworthy of God? Do you need to know a God who doesn't give up on you? You might have written yourself off, you might think you're far too old, or you're not healthy enough, or you're not educated enough, you're not this, you're not that, you're not whatever else it is. But God hasn't given up on you. He comes to you as a father comes outside to welcome you home and to embrace you. And the thing is this, if we respond to that and we receive that, one of the great beauties of that is that God's love will eventually reproduce in our own lives. The God we encounter will begin to reproduce the same kind of love that actually he's put and poured into our own, heart, our own hearts. So why don't you start today?